The following podcast is brought to you by OpenG Records. Be sure to check out OpenGRecords.com to see all about our upcoming release called SCH, uh, featuring new music by Pulitzer Prize winning composer Stephen Stuckey, as well as Roberta Sierra, Robert Schumann, and Franz Schubert. My guest today on the OpenG podcast is Xiaodong Wang, really known to everyone as X. X is a violinist and the best overall musician and natural talent that I've ever played with. He's a core member of the Open G House Band and will be making a record in the spring with fellow band member Zach Bierkin. X has a really fascinating story, which you're about to hear. Born in Cultural Revolution era China, he took lessons in secret with his father and emerged at the age of 13 to win a major international violin competition, only to disappear back into China when it was over. You're about to hear the story of his journey from there to America and all the twists and turns that made him into the person and musician that he is today. And so with that, here it is. So, today we're uh, in my man cave here with Zhaodong Wang, better known to his friends as X. X yeah. Let's start there. So... Did you just start going by X because people couldn't pronounce Zhaodong or what? Well, it's, Zhaodong? it's a very long story. When I first came here, I get all kinds of versions of my first name. And then, so I think I settled with X because that's the one that everybody knows how right. to say. And you can just immediately tell that's, a white person X well, and they'll be able well, to. Well, there are a few who say it right, but, and, but it just, you know, I think that the, the correction process takes way too long so i'm very <laughs> happy go with straight X. out yes. with x yes <laughs> so x uh violinist uh chamber musician dad general man about music I, I have to tell on you as we start i happen to think that you're uh and you know that i don't wax poetic about people very much i often always tell people that you are the best musician that i play with or that i have played with and uh when I am playing well, um, I'm somewhere in your neighborhood, and that's that's how I. You're feel too like. kind. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that off the top, just to let people know that 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 I really, I think, uh, I think you're a, a, a really great musician, and I really Thank respect you. I you. It. So, um, you know, we start a lot of these talking about people's childhood and and how they grew up, and in your case, I think it's really most important. So. Your childhood, you grew up where? I grew up in mainland China, and uh, what I guess made it interesting, I guess it's, it's interesting, it's more interesting now to tell the story, is that, that, that I grew up at the tail end of the Cultural Revolution, and I guess kids these days don't hear about it much anymore. Yeah, yeah I wanted to ask you actually a lot about that. What year were you born? I was born in 1969, and the Cultural Revolution ended in 1977. What brought the end of the Cultural Revolution? The death of Mao. So when you were born, Chairman Mao was still in power. Very much so, yeah. Actually, uh, correction, the the end of 1976, that's where it ended. I see. Um, And when you, what are your memories of the state, I mean, uh, uh, growing up in cultural revolution what what was day-to-day life like was it oppressive in any way or does it do you feel like you just thought of it as life as it was well i think you know when you grow up in in an oppressive uh, environment you don't really realize it because you know that's all you know what kind of things can you think of in retrospect that 
are kind uh, are pretty repressive that you that you now know that you didn't have to deal with necessarily. Well, I mean, for instance, like you know, just the the, the simple fact of learning to play on the Western instrument, musical instrument, it was at that time forbidden unless it was uh, unless you use this art form to serve the propaganda of the of the government. So, I. When my parents first started teaching uh, teaching me violin, we had to do it in some kind of secrecy because, and we tried to you know uh, hide it from the neighbors. So you know, because it's you know when they hear something that you play the violin, it's definitely not something that's considered cool. Uncool. It's well, it's not just Studying uncool. Western... It's, just, it's just not okay. Yeah, not in, okay. Right. right now, let me let me get into some detail about that. Were were your parents musicians? But both my parents were, um, uh, I mean, they still are uh, violinists, and my dad was the uh, concertmaster of Shanghai Symphony. Well, now, of course, they went to the conservatory and um, graduated from, from the conservatory before the Cultural Revolution. And during the Cultural Revolution, I remember my dad was the concertmaster of the ballet orchestra, and for the entire 10 years, that, that ballet company played two pieces. The and entire run of the ten years. The entire run of the ten years. And then remember, I could memorize those two pieces, two ballets, from beginning to the end, because those were the only two that was considered okay to show. So for the entire ten years, that was it. That's very bizarre. So if there, so if he's playing, where is your mom playing? My my mom was playing in in an orchestra that. Uh, they do the dubbing for the uh, the soundtracks for films, uh, uh, which basically serve the same purpose. Right. So, you know, they uh, also play another wing of the propaganda party. Exactly. Or, or the party. Exactly. Right. Um, when did you start studying the violin? Uh, about four. When I was four, and they they somehow found a, um, a, a half size violin that was way too big for me. I still have a picture of when I was five. I was holding the half-sized violin and it looked like a little cello on my neck. An enormous bass guitar that you're trying That's to, right. to play. Um, do you do you remember a time personally when you before you started playing the violin? Do you, do you remember the first time you played it? It's very vague now, but at least to my parents, to what they can tell me is that 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 I um I was they noticed that I was good with tunes. So I memorized the. I told you I memorized this two entire shows, and then right. I was like, even though that's all I hear, and it's not even good music, but that's all the music I get to hear at that time. So I was, you know, singing. I was repeating the the, the tunes, and they thought I had a little bit of a, you know, a talent for for music. So they started to so sort of direct me that way. There's no like popular music on the radio. There's, I mean, you. you Is hear, there any music on the radio? Oh well, yeah. There's about but the state music, of course, and then probably some sort of news and like you know, I don't know. Talk. I mean, you turn on the radio. There's no talk show. You turn it because because you know you don't go on the air and express personal opinions ever. Uh, but uh, there's you turn on the radio. There's the news, and they always starts with like everything's great. You know, <laughs> under under the government, everything's <laughs> going to be great, and you know. So uh, and. And music, you know, I think you, you listen to the radio for about a week and you can, you can memorize them all because there's not a whole lot. That's and going. they will just sort of cycle and repeat the same exactly. tunes. Exactly. And are, are those tunes probably 
orchestral versions of things that have words that are right. like how great the state is and how okay <laughs> it's, you know it's it's really interesting to me because i mean you know you were brought up in a in a in a state that controls everything that is non-religious i mean you you grew up with no religion uh that as an american is an odd is an odd thing now you said that well you, you thought you want to talk about religion i was i grew up th- and i was taught that vladimir lenin said religion is the opium of the mind yes so that's what i was taught so you know for them religion is just as you know what's funny is that i was brought up very religiously and now that's what i think (laughs) (laughs) well but but for a very different reason yes yes for my own personal uh for my own personal so um when you started taking lessons was it your dad who was your primary teacher or did your mom also teach you my dad i mean my dad was busy doing those two shows every night and uh, my mom on the other hand their orchestra they had nothing but time so you know they they have so she started me out and also you know i think it's always the mother who's a little bit more patient with the with the <laughs> beginners and, and yeah so your dad would have cracked the whip a little bit more when you were starting or would have not had the patience to even go through with it maybe no he's a very patient man but i think he just didn't really know what to do with the with the absolute beginner i see i see um and at a certain point, did you get handed off to your dad as as your primary teacher, or did you stick with your mom? I uh, I think at a certain point when I start playing real pieces, I think I I you know made the seamless transfer to my dad. And, and that's and around what what age? That's around I think I have to say about eight or nine, and then which is about the same time they realized that. That now I'm able to do a little bit more, and then I start to get a little bit cocky, so that I was not wouldn't really listen to them. Mm-hmm. So then they sent me out to their teacher when they were in the conservatory. So that you know. Okay, so let me ask you about the logistics of that. If if you're not supposed to be studying Western music, how are they pawning you off to another teacher exactly? But by the time I'm I'm eight, oh I see, it's already that that start to. But when I was starting, mm-hmm. that was not okay. I see, I see. And then so now we're around 1976 or so, right? 77. Okay. But, so by that time, it's already starting to be you know more and more accepted. Right. And I I have to tell you one detail that we used to have this. We sp- I remember we spent a fortune to buy this really really old reel to reel tape recorder, and and I had one tape. My dad had one tape when I was little, and I listened to it all the time. And that was that was Isaac Stern with Eugene Normandy and, and Philadelphia Orchestra playing the Mendelssohn Concerto. I, I had that recording. And and so, but not on real. I love that concerto, and and so that's all I knew. And I I just got totally obsessed with it because that's the only thing that I had. You know, I can get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember like when we were listening to that piece. We have to like really turn turn it down because this is Western music. This is not okay. Right. Yeah. I, so how did you how did you practice? How did you? Oh, I mean, when I was listening, when I was listening to that piece, I mean, I was nowhere in the kind of shape to be able no, to no, play no, that I piece. No, no, no. I mean, but I'm just, I mean, also to not have your neighbors hear you. Did you practice with a little mute on? Did you just play really softly? Do you have a little room? Oh well, we we just make sure we close all the doors and okay. close all the windows, and then it's especially like in the summertime, so we don't you know we don't open the windows. Yeah, and then, yeah. So. And how often would you do have lessons with your dad? I mean, every day. Every day for how long? <laughs> well, I started out um, 
with like half hour and then 40 and 40 minutes and then you know my mom would entice me into like a little bit more practicing with a little bit of food or something and again <laughs> see, see that's a back, back then the food thing is also uh you know it's the food is not that readily available so I see. so in a little even, extra food is and even more of a of an incentive than it would be for an american kid <laughs> like you're actually hungry I it's not just a hungry. treat it's actual nourishment now practice yeah, I, I, back, back then I remember like the uh, money was not the issue. Everything that you can buy, meat, egg, uh, um, you, you know, seafood or whatever that whatever uh, you get, and, and also rice and and flour, everything has a voucher. So you you go to the store according to that voucher, and then how the, these vouchers are distributed that's according to the population in your family and how you know they have their version of census bureau and see if you have a family of four this is how much you're getting and this is how much you you get as a kid and this is how much you get as an adult so if you had a million bucks back then it wouldn't do anything you still have to have those the vouchers. vouchers the million dollars does not buy you any vouchers right and and i and i can tell you uh, this is a true story some really really old guy lost about I don't know what was that, 15 kilos worth of voucher for rice and he killed himself you also told me one time speaking of um, a slightly different kind of oppression uh, of a pianist I believe who had his hands broken oh that's right because he refused to give up the people that who protected him and then they took him but the red guards took him away and literally Broke his fingers. So people were protecting him, and he refused to give up their names, and he they broke his hands. He refused to bring them into it, yeah. And they broke his hands and put him in jail for 10 years. And he's, and after 10 years, he came out and started playing again. That's... <laughs> I don't... I, you know, some athletes go to prison for two years, and they come out, and they're never the same. I can't imagine trying to play again after 10 years. Especially... I'm sure that, like, in prison, you're not getting the best medical care for your broken metacarpals or whatever you've got going on. Okay, so you're in mainland, coming out of uh, Cultural Revolution China. What is your first contact with the West, besides the recording and stuff? When do you actually uh, go out of China? Well, my first contact with the West was the actually the the, the, the Chinese visit, uh, the Chinese tour of Isaac Stern, when he first came. Remember the movie from Mao to Mozart? Mm-hmm. He made a film, and I think that was nineteen seventy nine. I think I saw that on PBS when I was twelve or something. Right. Like, yeah. And uh, I was, I think you know, I really hoped that, that I would be able to play for him. But at that time, I was too young, so I didn't really make it. I mean, my age was too young, so I, I couldn't really make it into the conservatory to be able to play for him. Uh, but that was the first real contact with anything that's related to Western art, like in in a live situation rather than you know uh, records and you know you know LPs. Mm-hmm. So um, because before that. All we had were tapes and LPs, and most of those were Soviet LPs, not American LPs, right. because we just didn't have any, you know. So I I grew up hearing a lot of Oystrak, a lot of Kogan, a lot of, you know, Rostropovich, and a lot of, so, Richter. Mm-hmm. But, uh... Who's a monster. Right. Richter just... Uh, oh, they all were, in, yeah. <laughs> in their own life. Yeah. 
but uh, that was my first time going to a live concert. And I remember... Besides the state ballet right, thing. Right, right. Do you remember what he played? Yes, Spring Sonata. Anything else? It's kind of it's kind of symbolic because actually, uh, in when you, if you watch the movie from Mount to Mozart, and they get all these people talking about the Cultural Revolution and how oppressive it was and how miserable it was, and then they're talking about the story that happened after the Cultural Revolution, and the first scene was Isaac playing the Spring Sonata. Hmm. So it's like spring finally comes. Mm-hmm. And did you were you just blown away? I mean, did it change your perception of anything, or was it what you expected? I, no, it's certainly not what I what I was expecting. But it's 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 a very different feel going to a live concert, and and you can hear recordings all the time. And given that, of course, the live concerts are not perfect, but that's not what I'm looking for. It's, right. You you go there because you want to be part of that experience, and. Um, and and I remember that was that was every bit of what I was you know uh, searching for and uh, it's I I guess you could say it's kind of like what I imagined but better uh, yes and um, it's kind of like what I hoped right and and the, as things do nothing ever lives up to it but this did yeah so um, at a certain point you. Uh, decided or someone decided for you to try to do some competitions outside of China how did that sort of how did you're like 13 right no, no, no. Um, and we're specifically talking about the Yehudi Minuan competition yeah so um, what makes the decision to, to to leave China for a second go go to England right and England well, I mean, at that time, it's still because you know China is still going through its um, um, changes, you know. So it, at that time, it was still like you know what I did was like I was just told to do that, and uh, who told you to do that? The school, my teachers, uh, my teachers. But then they had to go to their superiors, and then you know the school had a, a mini competition of its own, and they they probably but they, they select three of the. You know the one with three that has the highest score, and they because at, at that time was the state that spent the money to send us to England. Mm-hmm. So then they sent three from the entire country, so we went over there. Were you was that your first time on a plane? No, actually, I, I came to the uh, United States one time in 1981 for a little tour from you know with three other kids from the conservatory. And the same kind of thing. This is like we're China and this is what we can do now and let's show you how right. culturally advanced we're becoming. Yeah, I remember I went to like 20 cities. I went all over the place and I'm mm. playing some solo, some Mendelssohn D minor piano trio. I remember that piece very well. So, um, I mean, that was my first time playing it. So, yeah. I mean, this is also the first time that I, I told you like when we landed in LA that was picked up by a private jet from uh, like a big oil company from Houston and... Uh, and at that time, I thought that's how everybody lived in the states. <laughs> everybody has their own place. Yes, they get to fly wherever I say they no want. One, it's like no yeah. wonder everybody loves this place. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been like just mind blowing to come from Shanghai at that point, not looking like it does these days. I mean, it's a different city, at least right. from the outward appearance, than it would have been when you were growing up. But I mean, I mean, was it just like so culturally shocking that you just like how how did you react to that? 
it was unbelievable I mean, as a kid. But that, but you know, my parents were. I mean, they were always very cautious people, and then they they tell me it's like it doesn't matter like what kind of things you see. You have to be be careful what you say when you come back. And that's the lesson that they learned from the Cultural Revolution because I remember this very well and I remember this very clearly that they told me that, you know, you, you can't say how you feel, but you really never know who's listening and what, what kind of intention they're listening to mm -hmm. what you're saying. So, uh, you know, I was obviously very shocked about all of this and I thought, wow, this, but you know, I kept my cool. So I sort of was like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. You're too cool for school. <laughs> yeah. But did you have like American food that you liked at that point? Or like, did, was there, did you try a hamburger or no, some it was, pizza? It was a KFC dude. <laughs> <laughs> Fried chicken. All right. No, I like it. Um, okay. So let's go. So you had, had been on a plane and had been to the States and then you come and you do this major competition and long story short, you win. Now, what, what's the age range of that competition? That's like basically from anyway up to 22. Okay. But uh, the funny story of that is because I had so little expectation of the outcome of that competition. Because you know, being from China, for one, and uh, I never really expected anything, you know, too serious to, to, to come out of it. So, but at that time... I picked up a little game, you know, it's it's the English version of the American Pool, which is the uh, snooker. Mm -hmm. And I saw it on TV, I just got totally obsessed with it. And they have a place where you can go and play that. So I remember when they first announced the results of the competition, I was in the pool house somewhere. <laughs> because I never expected that to happen, so I, was just, I just left. <laughs> You're just off having a game of pool. Yes, because I thought, you know, I had my experience and that was very nice, and so I just went off to play so pool. So you discovered snooker in England? or Yes, you... on TV. I saw that. I was like, wow, that's really cool. So <laughs> That's hilarious. And then you just go like, okay, I won that. Now I'm just going to go the fuck home back to China, and that's that? I'll play a few concerts, and uh, yeah, pretty much. But it's like, sort of like you win X amount of cash plus this contract for these concerts and stuff? Well, yes, but at that time, the, the X amount of cash, there's only a certain percentage that belongs to you because you, you gave it back to the government because they're the ones right. who no, sent no, no, you. But I mean, ostensibly, you if... With if you didn't have strings attached, there's a money prize and then right. like some a couple of performances that yeah, go with it. Pretty much, yeah. So you go back, and then you get a little bit better or whatever. And then two years later, you do another big competition. I, I did the senior division of that competition. Of, of the same, which was the manual competition. Now that time, it's actually because I see this is. How the story is so much I didn't different. know this. I thought you just had the one menu in. I had the two menus, and then I went to Vinyavsky on the, in the see. same year. But, but the, psychologically, it's it's very very different the second time because now we're talking about a little expectation there. So what it, what's the age range for senior? Or is it just like oh, this is now an open big ass competition? And no, it, no, I I don't. I, th I think wait, wait, sorry. I think the junior was up to seventeen. The senior was up to twenty two. I see. So. Uh, yeah, then, then what happened was that, you know, obviously I went back to the same place and everybody knew who I, who I was. Right. And that, I have to say, was the very, very first time I felt pressure. Before that, I had no idea what You had nothing was. to lose. I had nothing to lose. Now, 
now I feel those something. It becomes a little heavy, you know, and like you know, it's like then you start thinking about, you know, what happens if I don't come out the way that everybody <laughs> expect me to come out. And this, I think, to a performer is actually quite deadly, because no one should ever have athlete. All sorts. Well, I mean, all all kinds of performance, yes, because it just no one should ever have to have that kind of uh, because it's and and learning how to deal with that is a very long and um, you know it's a very long and hard process to deal with the pressure of now of expectations and of your own and of the realization that you can fail. Right, and, and the realization of what if you fail, right, <laughs> and, and right. so and then somehow come out the other end and still being you know healthy and all that, it's it's uh, it's a challenge. No, no doubt. Now after doing these big competitions, then you just go straight back to China, yeah. Yes, and then um, uh, the second time when I was in London, I uh, met the teacher that I uh, studied with. When at I Juilliard. At Juilliard, Dorothy Gillette, yeah. Who is, um, if people are listening to this who aren't musicians, Dorothy DeLay is a legend of a teacher who produced careers of many major players uh, that we know of. Certainly, um, it's like Perlman, who else? Um, Midori. Midori, you know, and had a big stable. Uh, yeah, a, a stable and a successful machine, if you will, to identify talent to deal with talent and also to put you on a career path towards success perhaps so how did she 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 says hey you're pretty good you should come to america i went to her uh, her hotel and played for her and um that was after the competition and then she said that you know you should come to uh, juilliard and uh after i went back there was a letter from the Juilliard, uh, in, from China. Juilliard in China, from, from Juilliard School, saying that um, you know uh, there's been um, an arrangement of a um, scholarship, so for me to come study Juilliard, and that's so how the whole thing that's started. A full, like if if you come to America, we'll pay for your education. Right, and then but I had you know I still have to worry about my living expenses here because okay. I having to live in New York and all right. that stuff. But uh, but the the school was willing to take care of the uh, the, the tuitions the and tuition. the answer. So this letter comes or whatever. How do your how do your parents and you react to that? It's a very interesting thing because and at that time, of course, I was comfortable at home. You know, I had a little bit of the early fifteen. I was fifteen. I had a little bit of the early age success and. I didn't want to move. But it was my parents at the end that uh, they said, I think we should go. I think you should go. And actually, the funny thing is, I was just at home last week talking to my parents, and they were still telling me that I think we made the right decision sending you out. So so if they're still saying that to you, then they're still saying that to themselves, right? They're still like, they're still... Some question, not maybe not a question, but somewhere you know they just want to make sure that they still made the right decision. I guess. No, I mean I th- I think they're convinced that they they made the right decision. But I mean, well, there's a little bit of background that I have to uh, clarify here. It was it's it was difficult for me to leave home and come here at the age of sixteen and just be my on my own. You on, didn't know any English. No English. It meant just getting on a plane and leaving your parents for how long? 
for for indefinite it's for an indefinite period of time because at that time when I, once I come out I don't even know when I'm going to be able to go back and certainly not when they're going to be able to see you right I mean at that time for them to travel here I mean forget about it yeah. it's just not it's not happening right. I mean it's not like now right. so, but for me it was difficult because I had to you know leave and then meet some friends and some some of them they're, they're friends friends so I don't really know them I had to stay with them but for my parents I think it's a hundred times more difficult because. I don't have any siblings. Oh, right. So at that time, send, sending me out would chunk? mean to them that there is a chance, you know, it could be a long time before they see me again. And how long indeed was it before they saw you again? Well, the uh, uh, the first time I see them again was actually a year later when I soloed with the Julia Orchestra and Julia Orchestra toured Shanghai. Mm. But after 1987, actually, the next time I, I saw them was 94. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's brutal. It's, yeah, it's a lot of years. So they just basically, you know, you made the decision, you need to go do this, you put you on a plane, send you here to New York, yeah. you don't know English, where do you live? I lived, I have some friends that, um, from Hong Kong, and I lived with a friend's friend who lived in Queens I mean when he came to JFK and picked me up I, I didn't I mean I've never seen him before and I'm supposed to stay with this person and get my you know things settled in Juilliard and somehow find my own was this out in Flushing I was out in Elmhurst mm -hmm. I remember my first own place was um, was like in a basement somewhere and you're riding a train into Juilliard every day? Every day for about an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, I think. Sometimes it takes an hour and a half. Yeah, and I, I would, my first years, I would go to Juilliard and get there at 8 o'clock in, the in the morning and practice for an hour and go to go to classes. After the first year? After the first year, not so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a similar position uh, yeah. from when I was an undergraduate. Um, but... Um, so you're here, you, you, you start to learn English, you, you, you're going to class. Class is crazy hard because you don't know what the hell the p it's, people are talking about? It's crazy hard. It's really crazy. I mean, I just, you know, I think I have to really rely on my guessing abilities more than... Or your straight musical guess, yeah, musical ability to figure well, out what your answer is. But musically and otherwise, I mean, I just have to guess. And then from the body language, from the symbols, and you know, so... Yeah, I got through the first year, but it it catches on pretty quick. Um, so at this point, were you starting to have a career still playing with orchestras, or were you just basically here no? To I study? was. I mean, I think I'm, I'm basically studying every now and then. I would you know you know you know travel to Hong Kong or China to play with orchestras, but like I'm basically here studying. So, um, was there a point at which you started to get into that sort of? circle of performing with orchestras is that how did your career once you got to america how did your career develop where well, do you go well it developed i mean I, I you know during school i um you know i i had a manager and then in, and then i started to get a few things here and there but most things that i get it was still from the old contacts that i have with people with managers of orchestras and, and you know stuff like that and mm -hmm. then and because you know I mean that was one thing that I learned that you have to still rely on your own context you can't rely on your manager to get it for you 
And at a certain point, do you get tired of doing all this stuff? I guess um, I shouldn't say that it's not it's not accurate that to, for for me to say that I got tired of doing all that stuff. But I think when I was in school, like I wasn't, you know, maybe in terms of playing ability, I was, you know, I, I was okay to do the job, but. But I think mentally, I really wasn't ready for this kind of thing, for this kind of travel, for this. Kind of, I think I was just a little bit too young for it. Do you think that having a kind of stunted cultural education made you a little more sort of immature about that sort of thing, or more kind of scared of, of that kind of thing? No, I wouldn't say that, but I think it's more of the age, like, you know, at the age, and I didn't really know much, so I didn't really know how to take care of my own business, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if I, if, if I, if I had to do this all, all over again, I would do, I would, I would have done it very differently, but it's, uh, at that time, it's really, you know, the, 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 the bad thing about it, by the way, was that's doing a little bit too much when you're a little bit too young. And when you're not mentally ready to take all of that in, even even though sometimes you might think you're, you're physically ready, mm-hmm. uh, but the, sometimes your mind has to catch up with all of the all of the business and everything else that comes with because right. it's playing is never just playing. Right. Now, um, I know obviously in your current career you don't play except you do in in Shanghai still, but you're not a touring person who plays concertos with orchestras so at what point did your focus sort of fall from that path oh at the the last few years of my school i mean because you know i didn't really take care of my business well so that things start to just fall away to, to, to fall away and and uh so i had to regroup i had to regroup myself and then concentrate on my school and concentrate on my craft and that's like uh it happens. It's like you know, it, it it's not. It's talking about a little bit burning out. It's like you know, I was burning out both a little bit mentally and and uh, in terms of my my craft. It's like you know, you take care of that that too much, and then that's the part that I you know I can't say that I got a little sick of like you know practicing. No, just just taking taking care of all that stuff, and I wasn't re- really ready to take care of all that stuff, the business end mm-hmm. of things. So that that you know, I just kind of let it slip away. I think. So I think, again, uh, I talked about this actually in the last podcast that I did with an actor, you know, where you not only have to be able to have the craft, you not only have to sort of have a poetic heart, but then you have to go and take all of that and figure out how to make money and a business right. doing it. And doing all three of those things is hard. It's extremely difficult. And when, yes. I guess when you're 17 or 18... Yeah, I, I was, you know, I mean, because, you know, when I was 17 and 18, I just had other things to to worry about or just like, you know, that's really not in, in, in the foreground of my mind. And uh, I mean, this is maturity, I guess. It's yeah. just I wasn't quite there. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm 17 and I'm going to dial, you know, make sure I get my keep my connections all fresh and that everybody keeps in contact. And right. I mean, like. no, no, but that no, that's certainly not what you, you're thinking about, but certainly not. What, what I was thinking about when yeah. I was 17. I mean, 17, you worry about getting laid first. <laughs> you no, know, of course. You know, it's like... So, um, let me ask you about Juilliard pre, uh, pre-dormitory. pre um, If they don't have you up in a house, where do they put you up at that point? Well, <clears throat> the, the commonly known 
as the Julia dorm was um, the YMCA, the West Side YMCA. I spent a year there, and um, I think that's already too much for. Uh, so I mean, I started out, you know, way out in Queens, and um, I'm, you know, the good thing about it is it's nice and quiet, and yeah. I got my own basement to do whatever I feel like doing. But the the bad thing about it, this is, takes a long time to come in. So mm-hmm. and it's a little bit far away, but uh, it's not a long time to go home. Right. And that sucks at the end of a long day. Well, especially, yeah, I was uh, at the end of my uh, school years. I uh, used to have my lessons like at midnight. <laughs> and uh, she, by the time you get home, it would be like 2 o'clock. She it's, would have lessons at midnight? She would teach till that, that, that late, yes. When would she start teaching? Well, you know, she would schedule uh, lessons from, you know, earlier in the day, sometimes even in the a.m. hours. But, you know, in the a.m. hours, everybody knows that she's not going to be there. But she sometimes comes in early, but I think it's just because of her schedule and everybody wants to come in and talk to her. So that by the time she actually gets to the lessons, yeah. it's like, and then it just gets later and later and later and later. And then, then sometimes when you schedule, the, the, when she's ready for you, then you can't go because you have classes to go to. And then you come back and reschedule, so it gets later and later. So... <laughs> How long were your hour or were your lessons? Were they straight up hours, or did she end up spending a long time? Oh, I mean, if it's really like late at night, she will spend a long time with me, and then, and uh, she'll drive me to the train station or something. She drive me to the subway station, and then you're riding this train home at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah and at that time, like each train, in between each train is like forty five minutes. Yeah. So if you miss one, good oh. luck. So you're riding the seven out to Flushing? No, I was actually I wasn't a Flushing. I was riding. I'm fixated the, on Flushing today for some reason. I think you probably missed the food there. <laughs> I know, man. We need to actually... At sidebar, going to a Chinese restaurant with X is a pretty exquisite <laughs> experience because you just like just let X order and um, things will appear that are maybe on the menu and maybe not. Maybe not. And yes. uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty exquisite. Uh, how many students did, did Delay have at that time? Oh, I don't know. I mean, anything is a, a, a guess, but I think once I heard at one point she had she had something like two hundred fifty. Two what? Two hundred fifty. Not at all at Julia. She estimated she was no, teaching. No, no. I mean, at one time. At one time, <laughs> she she had two hundred fifty. No, in her studio, like no, like what? Yes. She was teaching two hundred fifty students at one time. I mean, like if she's teaching, are there in her studio? Are there eight violinists no, during no, no. a given year? In her studio at Julia, there was, I mean, well, she had many assistants, but, I mean, at that time, I remember half of Julia was her student. And, and then and on top of that, she was in Cincinnati. She was in Sarah Lawrence. And so, I mean... It was, so it might approach the hundreds. Oh, no, no, no. 250 was what I heard. I don't know if that's accurate, but that was... So at any one time... She might have had upwards of two hundred to two hundred and fifty students. Yes, that's insane. That's like that's mind blowingly insane. I can't even comprehend it. I really, I can't even like. Well, I mean, yeah, because then, then the next thing for you to ask is how did you manage? How did you manage to spend time with each one of those two, two hundred to two hundred fifty? I had eighteen students and I sucked at it. You know, it's <laughs> like I, I, I could barely drag myself to to out of bed and a lot of times fucking didn't you know I don't 250 holy crap that's... but 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 see the, then the answer is at the end of the day like either if you have they don't have time to see all of them is put like 24 of them in master class I, yeah, okay. <laughs> if I can have a master class and call all of them my students then so if you're um 
if you're kind of not taking care of your business and things are starting to fall away, is there a point in your career that you reached a point of like real crisis of like, man, I really either got to like figure my shit out or I, I, I got to figure something different to do? Well, I think like most people, like the crisis happened um, when, it, when it was time uh, for graduation, like a little bit after graduation the crisis happened because like and then that's the time you realize oh my god what i'm gonna do next and um you know i'm it's i don't know yes that it was a crisis but i i kind of let things work out itself and then at the end was was okay (laughs) (laughs) and how did it how did it work out for you first of all you came on the other side of it married yeah or was that well no i mean i i i I, well, first, actually, I found my voice in, in the group that I'm playing now, and it's called Kanchitante. Yeah, and, uh, and, um, and and the group was very lucky to have the support of this wonderful lady, Linda Shapiro. And, uh, and that's how, actually, I think I found my second voice in music. As a chamber musician. Right, and then, and then I realized that that was something that I truly love to do. And because I can tell you that, you know, before I was doing all these things, just because they're there for me to do and just because other people told me that you should go do this. But I I cannot say that that was something that I truly love to do. Playing the orchestra concertos. Playing, the, doing all this traveling and playing the, playing the concertos. I mean, you know, it's wonderful and all. And then now, you know, I do a little bit of it. I started to do a little bit more and I think it's wonderful. But but when, when I was handed that many as a kid... And I just did because city. other people, yeah, in, in a strange city with strange people, somehow keeping on a smile every time you go out there, and um, you know, I was never really good at that. Yeah, I think, I think it takes a certain type of personality to be able to handle that kind of right. I mean, it it breaks up almost every rock band known to man because touring is hard and it's like hard. you know, waking up in unfamiliar places and. Especially, you know, for you not knowing a lot of the languages and or or you know even the cultural history between the countries, I'm sure was a big mystery for a lot of the time. Yeah, for 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 me, I think most of it was just really like I at that time I lacked the maturity to handle any of that, so I just did it because it was there for me to do, and other people told me to do it. Right. I didn't do it because I love to do it, but. You do love the chamber music. I do love the chamber music, and but you know, and, and t- just to be fair, I think when I got into that, I was quite a bit older. I was quite a bit older, and I do know that what I would like to do, and I do know like things don't come easy anymore right. in life. So, well, I think that also reflects um, sort of the depth of thought that chamber music often. Has I mean, concertos can be great statements of art, like the Brahms or the Beethoven concertos, but they're still vehicles for virtuosity, whereas there's not that requirement for chamber music. It's sort of just purely what it is. And that's the kind of musician that I talked about before that I think of you as when, when something just purely is, you're just able to just like let it let it almost play itself in a way. It just breathes through the way that you play. Right. I mean, you know, I think 
again, it's it has to do with your own maturity and because it's it's intellectually a, a lot more stimulating. And whereas a concerto, of course, it's it's you know musically stimulating, but it's also like you know a, a platform for you to show it off. But uh, I mean, to be able—I mean, as a solo musician, I, I can I can tell you that you know I wasn't really able to really enjoy the uh, intricacies of you know a dialogue or mm-hmm. anything because when you stand out there by yourself with you this monstrous re- orchestra next to you, one rehearsal, two rehearsals, you get one rehearsal for your concerto, and uh, you just have to belt it out. Yeah, it's not really it's- you. Definitely not intimate, and sometimes right. borders on not music making. I would think, you know. I would say that because and you you don't you really don't have time to enjoy the finer details of things, and um, but that's the nature of the beast. And the nature of chamber music is actually to be able to enjoy those moments. And if you are going for virtuosity in that, then you're you're really barking up the wrong tree for the that's moment. That's right, because the, 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 the nature of chamber music, actually, and, and the glory of chamber music is in the finer detail of things. Right. It's really where Beethoven and Brahms allow themselves to fully explore ideas and to really get into the heart of that. Right. Uh, I mean, that was the first time I learned because ever since I was a kid, I was taught how to play the violin. And you know, you go out to play a concert, you go out to play a concerto, you're just told to play. Now, that was the first time I realized that getting into chamber music, you can't just play. Yeah, you have to realize what's going on, and that's actually and made it a lot more enjoyable because you actually know what was going on. And and mm-hmm. in many cases, I was able to do some of the other parts that was going on because you know I would do. First violin, second violin, first viola, second viola. So, at least on the instruments that I could manage to play, I will get from that particular perspective how that piece works. I mean, and uh, from now, and I think now all the like the major chamber music pieces that I've done, pretty much all of the parts. First, second, violin, first, second, viola, and then viola. But the second viola, I've done a second viola. So each time I play those, it brings a new side of things that I've never seen before so then you start to know what your colleagues mm-hmm. are talking about or maybe the things you were arguing about in the previous rehearsals when you're sitting in the other chair I can imagine that, that yeah that brings a completely different level whereas in a woodwind quintet I'm never going to know what playing the oboe part <laughs> or, or a bassoon or frankly I would rather just never play in a woodwind quintet ever, <laughs> if possible um, as we wrap this up X, I, I, you're here in your tuxedo, um, which uh, makes me feel super underdressed. Now, I know what that means on a Saturday at, in the late afternoon, but um, you often sub in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, uh, where your wife also plays in the violin yes, section. Yes. Um, and uh, I asked you what uh, what opera you're playing today, and your response was no. I well, I response my response was I wasn't really sure, but <laughs> but uh, uh, but in any case, I've, I I know that I've done this this week. So I think I think tonight oh, you've is, already played it this week, whether it's poem or oh, oh butterfly, butterfly. But it, it's it's a repeat. It's one of the repeats, and okay. I think it's butterfly tonight. It's a little bit less kind of harrowing than I thought it was because I really thought you were just like oh I don't know I'm just gonna play it. Which would make me shit my pants really, really hard. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do know, but I, I just didn't know which one of the the, the, the opera is uh, repeating tonight. You know, 
first of all, there's a lot of C clarinet in opera. I just would like, I, I would shit my pants. You know, I was talking with, with an actor uh, who was here last time about the length of performances, and he feels like a, like a nice play is around 75 minutes with no uh-huh. motion, right? Right, yes. And then I, talk, I said, have you, seen a, have you seen an opera at the Met? And he's like, no. And I was like, dude, I mean, two and, if, you go, if you're in a regular orchestra and you go over two and a half hours, it's overtime. Right. If you're at the Met and you go for two and a half hours, it's a vacation. It's a vacation. That's right. I, it's amazing. I mean, you. What is the longest that you have personally given a performance over there? What's the longest opera that the you've played? The longest so far. Well, I think I think one of the longest opera was, was Meister Singer, but uh, I haven't done it yet. But the longest I've done uh, was uh, um, the last opera of the the Ring Cycle, Gotemran. That's about six hours. Oh. You know, with, with, with two breaks well, in the middle. How long is the, is is what the uh... my singer? Yeah. I think it's a little over six. Oh, I think that's that's brutal. What? I don't know why people would pay to sit for six hours. I guess you know in no, but 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 eighteen seventy, it's one thing. No, but I think you know it's it's really that I used to think that too. But I think you know after a while now, once you get used to, it, I mean, there are people all over the world. They fly. I know. To, 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 they fly all over the world to catch the ring cycle, and it's just like, I know, and I, I, I didn't really understand it. But after playing a, a few cycles, like you know, I really, I can't understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that that's what I would do, but but <laughs> I can't, I, I can't understand. And and also like you know, it's um, I think when you it's when you sit in the orchestra pit, it feels very long. But when you sit out there, like like tonight, it's butterfly, and it's I always wanted to see the actual production itself because I, I've i seen it on TV and I think it's visually absolutely you, stunning. You sit far below the stage at the Met. I mean, you're 20 feet below the stage. Well, not 20 feet, but I would say right. about four, four or five. But What? It's deeper than that, isn't it? It's, it goes deeper than yeah. that, but, but usually it doesn't go all I the see. way down that much because otherwise it'll block all the sound. So... But uh, you know, it, it, you know, I've been in in the audience listening to uh, to, to operas. That, you know, it really doesn't feel that it's really that long if it's it's a great production. Mm-hmm. It's still, man, just too long for me. I, I still haven't. I I live five blocks from the Met. I could probably get some comps or some rush tickets, and I just don't. Yeah, but look, it's, if it's not for you, it's not for you. But sometimes, you know, when you get into things, it's you know, it's. I reference Mark Twain, I think, when he talked about Wagner, which is Wagner has some really beautiful moments, but some awfully dull half hours. <laughs> that's, that's pretty, I, I mean, some of the some of the operatic literature is like so mind-blowingly beautiful, but I only want about eight to ten minutes of it, and then after that, I probably want to either have a sandwich or like play a video game. I'm not. I just don't have the longest. Uh, the longest. Well, just it's next time if you ever in that, that situation, just think of it this way: it's that five minutes that made it worth it for those five and a half hours uh, before. <laughs> listen, I don't. I don't do anything that I really love to do for five and a half hours. I certainly, and I also Glenn Gould talking about why he he gave up like um, playing solo concerts and started working on just recording instead. He's like, you know, there are some people who would gladly sit in an on. Un- comfortable chair with 2,000 other people in uncomfortable chairs and listen to hours and hours of piano music, but it's just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's coming from a pianist. Well, X, um, I really... But, but if, if, you know, if 
you happen to catch this production of Butterfly, I suggest you see it. Uh, you know, it's almost stunning. anything at the Met is probably worth catching. I just am like too it's much really of a stubborn stunning. ass to not <laughs> to not catch it. X, I appreciate you stopping by for the podcast. I hope it's not the last. I hope we continue to have this conversation. But now that we know who you are, uh, it'll be nice to have you back and, and talk. Thank more you. About sure, I love to do this again. Cool. Man. Thanks. All right, man.